Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. My name is Grace Valor, and today we are discussing the series Inventing Anna. I have a story. Her name is Anna Delvey, or Anna Sorokin. No one's sure. She's either a rich German heiress or she's flat broke. The charges are insane. Inventing Anna is a series based on a true crime story about a woman called Anna Sorokin, but she goes by the name Anna Delvey, who... Uh, engaged in what we would call scams uh, and ripped some people off of quite a bit of money, including like lots of hotels and was attempting to secure a $40 million loan from a pretty large bank and ultimately was charged with, I think like fraud and conspiracy to commit fraud and, you know, some of those like white collar crimes. She has served her time for those charges, but is currently in an ICE detention center awaiting deportation back to Germany, where she is a citizen of. So that's that's who the real Anna is. Uh, although it appears as though she is still going by Anna Delvey, even though her legal name is Anna Sorokin. Um, but then the show is a Shonda Rhimes show based on an article that was written in The Cut, which is, I think, part of New York magazine a few years ago that went through kind of Anna's story and outlined all of the scams and interesting characters involved in Anna's story. So the show is based on that article, but it is fictionalized. There are aspects of it that are either exaggerated or just (laughs) purely made up. And it's really difficult to tell which aspects of the show are made up and which are true. So I thought it would be cool to go through the show, kind of parse out some of the things that are true, some that are not, and then do, you know, the classic psychologically minded approach where we talk about some research, some themes in the show that help us to understand why we find scams to be so interesting and why we really like these shows and even why maybe some of us get tricked into falling for scams, what makes us susceptible to those things. So that's what I've got for the episode today. I'm really excited. I did really like the show and I've been fascinated with the Anna Delvey case for quite a while now. So this will be a really good opportunity for me to get all those thoughts out of my head uh, and maybe be able to move on from Anna Delvey. So to start off, let's talk a little bit more about who is Anna Delvey, the character and the real life person. I have a question. What's you wearing? You look poor. I am famous. People are painting a public picture of me as a criminal. That's not my story. Every day, men do far worse things than anything I've allegedly done. So like I said, uh, Anna's real name is Anna Sorokin because she was originally born in Russia. She then moved to Germany with her family around age 16. uh, And her family now permanently lives in Germany. And she became a German citizen. After high school... Anna kind of jumped around a lot. She worked for some magazines, some internships for some media companies. She uh, enrolled in an art school, but later dropped out and was just kind of, I guess, professionally adrift, which to be quite honest, is quite (laughs) normal for that age range, that like fresh out of high school range, you're kind of still figuring out who you are. But Anna was kind of still figuring out what she wanted to do. She'd always been really interested in fashion and kind of like luxurious lifestyles. So she ends up in New York in 2013 to go to Fashion Week. And this really kicks off her transformation into Anna Delvey and her quest to establish what she calls the Anna Delvey Foundation or ADF. And ADF is important because it is the crux of the conflict of the show. So although Anna Delvey in real life was 
she, she had a lot going on. Um, the show really focuses on this period of her life where she was focused on starting this foundation. Now, the Anna Delvey Foundation, although it sounds like it's supposed to be a charity, uh, is not. <laughs> uh, her idea for it was that it would be a social club, kind of like the Soho House. So a place where like the very rich, the very elite in New York could gather. There would be fancy restaurants, uh, art pieces, like artists could come and do installations. And it would be in this very luxurious, uh, like old architecture building. And basically, you would have to have a lot of money to even participate in this club, let alone, you know, enjoy any of the events that this foundation was going to put on. So, and I just point that out because I was watching the show, hearing her keep referring to this foundation, it almost kind of lures you into the sense of like, well, she wants to help people. Like she's starting a foundation because the word foundation in our like pop culture, our culture in the U.S. is, I think related to this idea of like charity or you you start a foundation in order to serve a certain cause like raising money for breast cancer research or you know like I don't know I think like Habitat for Humanity is like a foundation right like you're building houses for people uh, but the ADF was not that it was to benefit people who are already very wealthy so it, I think that's something interesting to hold in your head as you're watching the show because on one hand you feel for her that she really wants to start this business but then on the other hand you're like what does this business do like <laughs> it doesn't benefit any like it benefits maybe like 50 people who live in New York City it's it doesn't benefit anyone else and it's really just i i would call it a vanity project because it's something that she can attach her name to and i don't think that Anna Delvey was unique in wanting a project that just you get to put your name on something i think the crowd that she was involved with in New York City and this kind of upper echelon rich people crowd I think a lot of them do that they start these foundations to be able to put their name on it to be able to have this like legacy or be able to say like I made something people will remember my name long after I am gone that that's all real life Anna is that that's her story and kind of how she came to New York and as we go through the show you may see that there are some things that happen to Anna in the show that haven't happened in real life or that the real Anna has not confirmed um, so it's kind of it's kind of tricky to really figure out who Anna is. And I think a lot of people have really projected who they think Anna is onto her. I just want to like preface this by saying like I don't necessarily feel like very sympathetic for Anna. Uh, you know, she, she did do financial crimes and she was setting out to do something that I don't necessarily think is a necessary goal. It was like a it was like a, a fun project for her, but I don't think it was like life-changing or, or world-changing to do this foundation but I do still think that a lot of people at least in the reactions I've seen in the media and on social media like online a lot of people are kind of putting what they want to put onto Anna and attributing some of her actions or what they think or think she's done to this like projection they've put onto her and not necessarily what has really happened and I think because there is there are some gaps in what we do know about the real Anna compared to what's in the show it's really, really easy to do that. So whatever, I just say that to be like, whatever your views are on Anna as we go through this episode, like just keep that in mind that a, a lot of the stuff that I think a lot of the opinions we have about Anna may not be necessarily reality. It's based on like these projections we have onto her. And I think she kind of represents this like elite, rich class of people. So it's a lot, it's really easy to put a lot of maybe like, hatred or disdain or frustration with people who hoard wealth like this onto Anna even though the reality is is that she'd never had <laughs> access to wealth like she, she she did not have her own wealth and that's that's really the, the crux of the story so all that to say that's Anna Delvey who is our gonna be the star of our show now the show Inventing Anna follows Vivian Kent who is a journalist writing uh, a really big story about Anna it might not seem like it now, but it will be okay. It's gonna be okay. No touchings. <laughs> Vivian. Yes. Are you? Are you? Are you pregnant? Are you just so very, very fat? And she is actually based on the real journalist who wrote about Anna. For the cut, Jessica Pressler. 
And interestingly enough, when I was researching this article or this episode, I found out that Jessica Pressler also wrote the article that was made into the film Hustlers with J-Lo. So if you've seen that, which is a, a movie about a group of uh, women who work as strippers who scam rich men out of their money. So Pressler writes a lot of these kind of scam stories. She writes a lot about celebrities as well. So it makes sense why Hustlers got turned into a movie with J-Lo. Um, but I think it's also cool that a Pressler style, I think, translates really well to visual media as well. Um, and I, I recommend you reading the original article as well. She's she's a, a pretty good writer. She is a great writer. <laughs> um, but so she is portrayed as this character, Vivian, who has a who works for a fake magazine called Manhattan, which is like you know, a playoff of New York magazine. And she has like this group of three older writers who have essentially been put out to pasture at this magazine. They don't get important stories anymore. They're kind of forgotten about. They call the desks where they sit Scriberia because they're like forgotten. And these uh, writers help Vivian to put the the story together. And this is an interesting narrative technique that they're doing because otherwise it would just be a story about a woman sitting at a desk typing for days. Like that would be very interesting if we followed Vivian through the story, if she was working by herself, which is more how like Pressler worked on it, right? Of like doing your own research writing up the story, going through edits. It's more interesting as an audience to watch a team process all of the information they're learning about Anna. You know, Vivian has like a wall in her room that's like a conspiracy theory red thread um, wall where she's tracking all of these things about Anna. And it's narratively a lot more interesting and easier to follow the story than what is the true process of journalism. So I think even from this aspect of like how we see Vivian writing the story gives us a good clue of like how the show exaggerates and has to expand these true things out into bigger stories because otherwise we would be bored watch this this wouldn't be a good show right like a sto- a, a show about a woman writing an article is not really interesting if all she's doing is writing the article right like we want to see her going out and interviewing people we want to see her fighting with her editor to get this story written. We want to see like the the cool stuff. And so I think the showrunners did it. I liked what they did by having it to be this team and this team of older writers who are able to kind of guide Vivian through the process. Now in the show, Vivian is pregnant and there's like all this drama about her having to finish the article before she gives birth. And she's like technically in labor, but still finishing the story. And it's really tense. Like, is she going to finish it before the baby is born? Uh, she's like sitting on a towel because her water could break and she like submits the story right as her water breaks and her husband rushes her off to the hospital. Now, here's another, again, an example of how something that was true in real life is exaggerated in the show. So Pressler was actually pregnant when she was writing her story about Anna as well. She was about eight months pregnant when she finished the story, but she did not give birth <laughs> like two days after submitting her story. And in fact, she uh has talked about in in interviews that after she gave birth to her child she like shut off her phone and didn't check her email and in fact missed an email from Shonda Rhimes uh inquiring about buying the rights to the story to make it into a show so there was a delay in the show even getting greenlit to be made because Pressler had given birth and was like on maternity leave which is incredibly appropriate and the way that things should go that if you've had a child, you should get a break and get parental leave. Um, and I think that's, again, it's something that needs to be exaggerated for the show to make it more exciting because it adds tension. It adds more of like a a pressure on the deadline that Vivian has to get this done before she's given birth. And this actually is a, a plot line that we see for Vivian's story is this fear that if she doesn't get like a good story published by the time her daughter is born then she's not going to be able to be a good mother. She wants to be able to show her daughter that like women can succeed and women can have careers. And at the point in the story where we meet Vivian, her career is kind of in shambles and we later learn why. And it's because Vivian had reported on a story about a high school student who made a ton of money. It wasn't even a story. It was like a list about things in New York. And she, uh, one of the, the, list items was this guy this teenager who made a bunch of money off of the stock market 
turns out the kid had lied. There wasn't really any money. And the story comes out that he had lied. And Vivian is kind of painted as a bad journalist who coerced a child, essentially, into lying on the record. And so Vivian was not supported by her editor. She Her career takes a nosedive. She loses a really important promotion that she was supposed to get. And she that's why she's in Scriberia with the older, closer to retirement age authors is because of this like almost career ending quote unquote mistake that she made. And there is some actual similarity to Vivian's experience and Pressler's is that Pressler did uh, write a story about a high school boy who made millions playing the stock market on his lunch break. But the difference is that Pressler's editors stood with her and like defended her and, and backed her up when the story broke that the, the kid had lied. Uh, but Vivian's story is a lot different where she's kind of thrown under the bus and having to rebuild her career. So again, exaggerations that just make the show more interesting. There's higher stakes if we think that Vivian's career has been derailed in a much more intense way than actually happened to Pressler. So all of these things kind of come together for this character Vivian. And this becomes a plot in the show about her feelings around her pregnancy, her feelings around giving birth, becoming a mother, and balancing the things she wants to do in her career, her reputation, um, and you know, also maintaining like her relationship with her husband. So uh, you know, that that fills in a lot of the episodes too, is like following Vivian around. It's not just focusing on Anna. We we do follow a lot of these characters and learn more about them, but that also is wherein the embellishment comes in because you have to make these very ordinary people <laughs> exciting <laughs> uh, and, and watchable for 45 minutes. Um, so those, those are our two main women. We have Anna and Vivian. We also have Todd Spodict, who is Anna's lawyer. Anna came to New York, no rich parents, no connections. Sometimes you got to fake it till you make it. In real life, his name is Todd Spodick as well. He in, the, in real life is bald. <laughs> in the show, he has a full head of hair. Um, in the show, they portray Todd to be really wrestling with his reputation as a lawyer. Uh, he's like a middle class guy who's married to a woman who comes from a family with a lot of money. So he's like kind of insecure about his reputation and like providing for their family. So we see that he wants to take on Anna's case because it's a huge case, especially after the article comes out, like people are really following the trial and this could really make a name for himself. To not only have like a celebrity client, but also to be involved in a case that has like this these types of financial crimes, like they're they're, they're big charges. Um, we also have three other characters who are I think the most important that are Anna's friends. So the first two are Anna's friends that stick around <laughs> for Anna. Um, the first one is Neff Davis. Image, money, power. Everyone is hustling. So she. Uh, works at a hotel. She's a concierge at this like upper class fancy hotel in New York. She meets Anna when Anna moves into the hotel and they become friends. And uh, Anna actually gets in trouble at that hotel because she's not paying off her bills. And through a variety of check kiting scams, <laughs> Anna is able to get enough money to pay off the hotel. But throughout the whole issue, uh, Neff kind of stands by her and even when Anna is in jail and has been arrested Neff still kind of sticks with her and and we see that to the end Neff essentially believes Anna and doesn't see what Anna did as a crime but kind of sees her as you know she was hustling she was trying to make it happen uh, and the real life Neff actually worked as a consultant on the show and is still real life friends with Anna still has contact with her. And when Anna was out of prison for a brief time before she got uh, locked up by ICE, Neff and Anna were like posting pictures with each other on social media. <laughs> so that's that's Neff. And she is closer to Anna's age. Then we also have Casey Duke, who is Anna's personal trainer, who also kind of like hangs out with her. Uh, they, they socialize a lot. I will also not be going to Rikers to see her. How do you just turn your back on someone? The person in prison is not Anna Delvey, not the person we knew. Anna Delvey doesn't exist. She's Anna. She may be your friend, Anna, or she may be a total stranger. Do you really want to go down there, walk into that prison, and find out the person you thought was one of your closest friends was just a made-up character? This seems to be a thing that they show in the show, is that, like, 
all of these rich people who pay Casey like a lot of money to be their personal trainer also then like invite her to dinner and out to lunch, which whatever, that's cool. Uh, it's just kind of funny that, I don't know, would you invite your personal trainer to eat carbs with you later? <laughs> Seems to be maybe counterintuitive, but I don't know. I don't have the money for a personal trainer. <laughs> so Casey is, is the personal trainer. She's also much older than Anna and some of the other girls. So I think I think she's able to react to Anna differently and, and she kind of is able to hold her own. Um, she's played by Laverne Cox in the show, who is a fantastic actress. And she really is kind of like this voice of reason. She's able to really calmly kind of talk through what's going on. And she also in real life, Casey, is a consultant on the show as well. So Casey and Neff get to be a part of the show. The last friend is Rachel Williams. Give me back that money, please. Why are being like this so dramatic? Who is the person who reports Anna for financial crimes? Now, the reason Rachel reports Anna is that uh, Anna and her go on a trip to Marrakesh, which is in Morocco, and they stay at this very fancy hotel in the most expensive room at the hotel, and... Anna has been lying to people how about much how about how much money she has. So Rachel is under the assumption that Anna will be paying for most of this trip, but Anna does not have any money and her credit cards are getting declined. So Rachel ends up getting put into a position where she feels that she has to give her credit card over. So she puts like something like $62,000 on her credit card to cover this trip. And this, it was like a week long trip. Okay. So it's like, that's how much money they're spending that in a week they're, they have to pay a hotel $62,000. And Rachel put some of that amount onto her work credit card because she is a photo editor for Vanity Fair. So Rachel can't get Anna to pay back the money that she spent uh, on the hotel in Morocco. Anna ends up wiring her like $5,000. And this is all true. Like this is all part of the, the actual crime. Um, Anna gives her $5,000. It's like nowhere near enough. Rachel's trying to hide it from her work. She ends up kind of having to come clean because like these huge credit card balances are due and she doesn't have the money to pay them off. Uh, But it turns out that her credit card company forgives like the majority of the debt because she tells them that she got like pressured into spending this money essentially. She tells them she got scammed so they forgive the money. So Rachel really doesn't actually owe any money because they forgive all of the the balance. Um, but in this process of realizing that Anna doesn't have the money to pay Rachel, she tries to like confront her. Anna's really evasive, runs away, like, you know, avoids the conversation. So Rachel essentially goes to the police and ends up, uh, I think believe, I believe talking to the district attorney to file charges uh, for fraud. Um, cause with white collar crimes like this, or like these types of financial crimes, it's not like you call 911 and say like, help someone stole my bank account number uh it's it's like it's kind of a different process so rachel has to work with the da to to get these um charges filed and that kicks off one of the most sensational trials of i think any financial crime uh that i've ever seen is uh you know anna's trial kicks off with rachel's filing of these charges so those are i i think those are our most important characters and the way that they all interact with each other is is really fascinating again some of this stuff is exaggerated for either comedic or entertainment effect uh, or just to increase the drama of the moment. But most of what happens, like the big things that happen uh, are are pretty true. So in reality, here are, here's some of the scams that Anna pulls. So she does your classic check kiting scams, which is where you write a check to yourself at one branch of a bank. So you like let's say you go to the downtown branch and you write a check to yourself for like ten thousand dollars. You have the bank deposit it so that now there's appears to be ten thousand dollars in your account. You then go to another branch of the bank, like uptown, you write a check withdrawing ten thousand dollars from your account because the checks haven't been processed yet, because most banks take I think like three or four days for the check to actually be like cleared, but they automatically give you access to the money. You can then pull out the $10,000 even though it never existed. So Anna was doing that. She would be writing checks, like depositing money into her account that didn't exist and then going to another branch and pulling it out. That's how she did a, uh, got through a lot of the stuff. And 
it's quite frantic I think living this way because you're like always trying to keep track of like which account did you just deposit into you have to have a lot of cash on you at all times because you you have to do this has to be done through cash you have to withdraw it um as cash you can't like use your your card for it uh because the, the money won't be there you have to like get it out all the, all at once so she she was doing a lot of that she was also doing a lot of faking wire transfers so because she was from germany she would tell people that one of the biggest problems in her getting money to them was that her bank was a foreign was a german bank and that she couldn't uh get the wire transfers approved or she had reached like her international banking limit you know there if anyone's ever traveled outside of your country you know that they they'll turn your credit card off like immediately right like all your banking is not as secure when you go outside of your country where your bank is uh and so this is believable right for anna to be like oh well my bank is in germany you know <laughs> she would, she'll even say to people like it's a different time zones so, like they're asleep when you want your money here um so she she did a lot of that she also would tell people that she had a trust of like 25 million dollars and that her father wouldn't allow her to have it until she turned 25. And so a lot of this was people believing Anna was going to have a lot of money one day, but didn't have it yet. And anytime she ran out of money, she would just say, oh, well, my parents cut me off. Like I was getting this allowance from my very rich parents and then they they cut me off. So that was like a convenient excuse. And I don't know if that's technically a crime. I don't, I don't think she got tried for that at all so you you understand i think i understand anna as like someone who just kind of got away with like little lies and so she kept lying because people believed it the first time so why wouldn't you keep trying and if they're gonna believe these little things well then you escalate it a little bit every time and there's never any pushback like what are you gonna do if someone tells you they have a 25 million dollar trust waiting for them when they turn a certain age like okay like you can't check that like especially an average person uh isn't isn't going to check that so it's this is how i think a lot of her scams kind of got out of hand was she would tell these little lies fluff up her reputation and people would believe it or not push back or question her and so she just kept going uh, and got to the point where she is today which is in detention uh some other things that anna did was she stole a personal uh private jet well she didn't steal the jet it's just she showed up at the tarmac and was like hey i know the guy who runs this company this jet company can i get on the jet money's on its way like she did a lot of checks in the mail kind of thing she'd be like wire transfers on its way it's just gonna take a few days so they let her get on the plane but she never actually paid for it so she essentially stole it even though again like you could have told her she's not allowed on the plane until you have like $5,000 in your hand, but they let her on the plane because this is something that comes up in the show a lot. And I think is actually is true is that the people who work for these, the people who work for rich people. So like in the show, there's the private jet company. They're at like big designer stores like uh, Neiman Marcus. And they're used to, serving this clientele who has such an enormous amount of money that like respect and deference is automatically assumed and expected. So you don't push back, right? Like if you work at a Neiman Marcus and some guy comes in and is like, oh, charge it to my store account. You know, I'm a, I'm a billionaire. Are you going to really be like, sir, I need to see your ID before I can take this check. You know, like you're not going to do that because this person is telling you that they are commanding this amount of respect and if you were to ask that question or to question their wealth at all they would freak out on you you'd get escorted out of the store and you lose your job right and and i want to be clear i'm not saying that this is right or that this is the way that people with money should be treated i don't think that having additional wealth means that you get more respect i think it should be equitable across like socioeconomic status and that there probably shouldn't be people that hoard wealth <laughs> to this extreme but this is the reality that people who have a certain amount of wealth command a certain level of respect so anna walking into these spaces like into these stores or this private jet company and saying listen i have big money i know your boss i know all these people with big money so you're more likely to believe that i have big money let me get on this jet you will get your money because all these other people pay uh that that's how this stuff happens right because 
she's coming in with this reputation that her money is supposed to be giving her. So the people who work for these companies are like, okay, well, this has happened before. And in fact, I was reading an article about this particular story where they interviewed the people who worked for the private jet company that were there when Anna stole the jet. And they said this, they said the same thing that this happens all the time that these big wig rich people come in and say, Hey, I'm going to charter a jet for, you know, three days. Don't worry. Money's on the way. And they let the people onto the plane and they don't have their money in the hand yet. Now they, in the, in the interview, they said in the past, they always got the money. They always, the money always came through. But why wouldn't they believe Anna? And Anna is learning this by surrounding herself with these people who have this amount of wealth that, oh, if I act like them, I get the respect that they get. Because again, no one's checking. No one's saying you have to submit your bank account records to get onto this private jet. All you have to do is show up looking the part with your Gucci bag and your big sunglasses and your vaguely European accent, (laughs) and people will let you do what you want especially if you can lean on the reputation of others. And this actually plays into why we fall for scams, which I'm going to talk about later, but it's this like taking on these identities and using these markers of wealth to demonstrate that you have wealth, even if it's not true, right? Because, you know, the average people listening to this, you're probably in the same boat as me where maybe you could scrounge up $800 to buy a Gucci bag. Okay. Maybe we could all pitch in together. We could get a Gucci bag and then we use that Gucci bag to get a private jet. (laughs) That's what Anna did. Okay, Anna was able to scrounge up the little money that she had to buy nice things so that she could play the part to get more money to get more things. It just was a snowball. That's how her scam worked. So, all right, let's round this up. What has Anna done? (laughs) She's stolen a jet. She's uh, essentially stolen money from her friend by having Rachel pay for the hotel and then refusing to pay her back. She's done some check scams. She's done uh, some fake wire transfers. And then I think the big one is she misrepresents herself to a lawyer in an attempt to secure a loan. So, and again, this one wasn't, I don't believe this, she was convicted of this one. Um, She was convicted of some other loans she tried to get out of the bank. But essentially what happened is Anna is introduced to this man named Alan Reed, who is a lawyer who his job is to help people get loans. So he's like a corporate lawyer guy. And so he gets connected with Anna and she tells him, you know, I want to do ADF. I want to get a loan so that I can buy this building, which is like, what's like $20 million worth? Like, so she needs $40 million to be able to buy this building and then do um, all the stuff inside of all the renovations she wants to do. So they start working together. And what he needs is he needs proof of her trust fund, like her wealth to be able to get approval for the loan. So basically, will you be able to pay this loan back? Show us that you have enough wealth. So Anna starts sending him fake, uh, financial statements that show how much money is in her so-called trust that she's been telling everyone she has. And she makes up a fake email account and she poses as her family's uh, financial manager, who is not real because her family is not wealthy. (laughs) Her family was never wealthy, but she goes around telling people they are. So Anna's pretending to be this financial manager. She's sending over these fake statements and the lawyer is just eating them up. And he is approving her through these steps to get to the point where she would get approved for a loan, even though he technically shouldn't have. Like his job is to prevent this from happening, right? He's supposed to be the one managing like the legal liability. And although he's missing some crucial information and they, she does this a lot as the financial manager, she'll be like, oh, I thought I sent it to you or it should be in the mail. Like it should be on its way as if the internet is not immediate. (laughs) I mean, I know it's like international, but it's not, it doesn't take that long to send an email, right? It's going to get there. So She's she's doing this fake scam uh, to to Alan Reed. And he's, again, he's signing off on all, all this stuff, even though there are doubts. There's missing evidence. There's not 100% proof that this girl has a trust fund of like whatever million dollars. But he's so caught up in her, I guess, charisma or her like story that he's going along with it and approving, approving, approving. So she get so close she's like so so close to getting the 40 million dollar loan but it falls through so 
she doesn't she's not charged of a crime there because she never got the loan so it's like essentially if you didn't do if you didn't get the money like it's it's not a crime right it's not a scam but she was misrepresenting her assets to to this lawyer now an interesting thing that they do in the show to kind of illustrate how anna could get this lawyer to buy into her story and believe basically all the things that she's saying about her funds uh they they show how she uses her closest in age to his daughter and i don't know for sure if this is real or not i don't think it is um or at least not everything that is portrayed as anna saying but i think it's interesting how they use the they use it in the show and i think it could possibly be a reason why um especially older people listen to anna and like kind of went along with her so what she does is there's a scene where alan is telling her like i don't know if this is gonna work like there's I'm having trouble getting these documents like things aren't going well uh and I and and he, he tells her like I don't know if I could work with you because you're you're like a nobody like you came out of nowhere so she figures out that he has a daughter who's similar to her age and he's about to cut his daughter off so he's been financially supporting his daughter and he's going to stop doing that so she comes in and gives him this impassioned speech about how you know I'm just like your daughter don't you think it's unfair that women get left out of business and young women are taken advantage of and, you know, you want your daughter to learn how to be self-sufficient. That's why you're cutting her off. And I'm trying to be self-sufficient myself. So why are you cutting me off? So she's manipulating him, right? By like leaning into this thing about his daughter, like closely identifying with his daughter and really painting a portrait of herself as like a you know a young woman with a big dream who's just trying to make it in like a male dominated world right and it's not fair and she, like she's doing girl boss stuff right she's like hashtag girl boss i should be allowed to do this because i'm an empowered woman now do i think that feminism should be used in this way no <laughs> do i think it is very funny in the show that this man is ready to believe her and give her 40 million dollars because she reminds him of her his daughter Yes, I think that is very funny. And again, that puts the onus on this man, right? If you knew from the numbers and the fake documents that she isn't going to be able to pay this loan back, why are you approving her for this loan? Why are you helping her to do this process when you you, you know that it's not legit, that you wouldn't do this for any other client or any other, I don't know, fake rich person, <laughs> But you're going to do this because she's telling you she's like your daughter and you're having feelings about how you're parenting your adult child. And again, I don't know how much truth there is to that speech happening, but I do think that a lot of the people that Anna was involved with, especially the older people, there's several older rich people in New York that she kind of got involved with and, and either stole money from or recruited to be part of her scam to get these loans from the bank. I think there was some pull there of like, yeah, she is a young woman. She reminds me of like my child or me as a child or me as a young person. Uh, you know, they they want to like be a part of it. And they get drawn into Anna's youth and Anna, what Anna reminds them of in their own lives. And it's this is what I mean when I talk about the things we project onto Anna. That's that's not Anna. Right? <laughs> Anna isn't your daughter. Anna isn't you when you were that age. Anna is Anna, but these people are projecting this identity onto her. And I think that pulls them in and makes them want to believe what she's saying, because why wouldn't I believe something that I would say or that my daughter would say or someone I know would say, right? It's a lot easier to believe someone who reminds you of you than it is to just some stranger with, again, a vague Euro trash accent <laughs> who's, who just showed up for the first time in New York City several years ago, right? This pull of like, you remind me of someone I know is part of why we can get pulled in to scams, right? And and this is really common on internet scams. So here's a, here's a pro tip. <laughs> if someone messages you from like an unknown number or like an, a weird Instagram account and is like, hi, I'm so-and-so, like whether it's a celebrity or, you know, your cousin or whatever, like someone that you would know the name of, but you may not know them in real life. If they do that and then they ask you for money, it's fake. <laughs> Okay. These celebrities don't need money from you. Okay. Ariana Grande is not going to message you and say, can you send me an iTunes gift card? It's, it's not real. Right. But the scammer is using this like connection we have to celebrity or to people who remind us of ourselves to 
get you to not look at the red flags. And that's what I think happened with Anna every step of the way. People got pulled into her orbit. She is charismatic, I think, in, in, in a way. She's, she pulls you in. She has a fascinating story. She's spinning this tale of the Anna Delvey Foundation, which if you have a million dollars, I guess, seems cool to you. <laughs> she's spinning this tale and she's drawing people in. And so they're willing to overlook the weird things. They're willing to overlook the fact that she only lives in, a, in hotels and has never had an apartment. They're willing to overlook the fact that she's constantly saying her wire transfers are coming soon and has really weird excuses for them, like, the time is different. <laughs> you know, people were overlooking, overlooking these red flags until they snowballed and became red banners. And then by then, Anna had left because Anna knew how to pull out of a situation when the red flags accumulated. She knew she could get away with only so much before you know, people figured out what was really going on here. And you see that in the show a lot too. She, she'll, she'll just, she's done with a friend. There'll be a character who they're a main focus of an episode. And then all of a sudden Anna's not speaking to them anymore. And it's because she's, she's used them for their utility. They've got, she's gotten to the point where she doesn't need them anymore because they have caught onto her or they, they are out of, of money or whatever to give to her. So all of that to say, I think that is one of the things that is so fascinating about Anna Delvey is that she was able to charm these people into overlooking things that are red flags. And I think Anna's story also really highlights that it doesn't matter how wealthy you are, you're still vulnerable to these types of scams or tricks. Uh, and that that's, that's what's so hu- human about us, right? Like our brains are willing to be, to be tricked by these things. So I think that's a great segue for me into why we get tricked by scams and how this whole process works. So based on some brief research that I did uh, in the old journals of police and criminal psychology, uh, we don't actually really know a lot about why individual people are susceptible to scams. So it's hard for us to develop models that would predict why one person might be more likely to be scammed than the other. In fact, uh, a pretty large... Uh, lit review or uh, lit meta analysis was done on studies that looked at um, like scam responses and found that personality type, so personality styles, um, if you're familiar with the big five traits, the ocean traits, those like stable personality traits are actually not related at all to if you're more likely to believe a scam or not. So, for example, introversion versus extroversion is one of these personality traits. There's like no consensus in the literature if being extroverted makes you more likely to be scammed or being introverted makes you more likely to be scammed. There's like, it's just, it just doesn't seem to be related to personality factors. What it does seem to be related to is the way that we process information. And although this can come down to individual styles, there are larger like groupings we can do about how people process information and uh, the human brain does a lot of shortcuts that make us as a species <laughs> more likely to to fall for a scam. So what are those things? So one of the things is that we have a, a, an aspect of our brain that is hell-bent on identifying cheaters. So being able to look at people's behavior and say, who's cheating? <laughs> who, who, who's trying to get ahead and not playing by the rules? And we get excited when that part of our brain is activated. And we also get a sense of relief that we didn't get scammed. So when we watch these shows, like we watch Inventing Anna, we get excited. That part of our brain gets activated and, and our overall arousal goes up because we are able to say like, oh, she's doing a bad thing, right? She's doing a cheat, a scam. We can identify Anna is a scammer. And at the same time, we're seeing other people get scammed by her and being like, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> I would have been able to spot that she's a cheater. And it's able it's easier for our brains to get activated that that cheating part to get activated in a show because everyone's behavior is laid out for all to see. Now, when you're interacting one-on-one, like if you were to sit down with Anna Delvey before she got arrested, before anyone knew what was going on, you probably wouldn't be able to identify those flags like that part of your brain wouldn't be activated at first because you're not able to see all of her behavior laid out. But in the show, we see how she reacts to different people. We see different perspectives. 
We get to hear from all of the characters and their inner monologues or dialogues. We have an overabundance of information in which we can use to identify like what is a cheat or a scam. So that's why we get like scam shows is because this part of our brain that likes to identify it. But unfortunately, this part of our brain uh, needs a lot of information. And that's not always possible when we're working one-on-one with someone. So the one big thing that seems to be pretty consistent in why we fall for scams is called decision heuristics. And so a heuristic is essentially a cognitive shortcut. So what is going to make it faster and easier, take less energy for your brain to make a decision? And we make like literally thousands of decisions a day. So if you've ever heard of the term decision fatigue, it's because by the end of the day, you've probably made like 30,000 decisions. Like no joke, you've probably made 30,000 decisions and you're exhausted. Your brain is tired because it expends energy every time it makes a decision. And decision making is part of the prefrontal cortex, which is the, the like higher evolved part of the brain. It's the part that's uniquely human. So it takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of resources to make decisions and we're constantly doing it. And it's not just decisions like, should I move in with my partner? Should I like quit my job? It's decisions like, do I put my left sock on first or my right sock? Do I put my pants on one leg or two legs at a time? (laughs) It's all these little tiny decisions we're making day in and day out to just get through our day, to to literally decide what to do next. So we get to a point where we are fatigued by how many decisions we've had to make. So in an effort to save on the energy that it takes to make these decisions, our brain uses these things called heuristics, which are, again, the shortcuts. So an example of a heuristic might be that um, if your friend says they, let's say you're trying to decide between like a chicken sandwich and a hamburger for lunch. And your friend says, oh, I've had the chicken sandwich before. It's really good. You're more likely to decide on the chicken sandwich because someone you know is recommending it. So it's a, it's a known, right? The hamburger is unknown because your friend hasn't tried it. But the chicken sandwich is known, so you're more likely to make that decision because it's easier to do that because you have now more information about it. And that's a heuristic, right? So your your shortcut is based on the information you gain from someone that you know and you implicitly trust them because they're they're someone that you know, right? Versus if the sign just says the burger is better, right? Like that's you don't know who wrote that sign. But you're relying on your brain is relying on the shortcut instead of having to weigh through like What's the difference between the chicken and the burger? Like, does it have all the toppings on it that I like? Does it come with the right side that I want? But your friend says the chicken sandwich is good. Okay, boom, I'm going to have that. And not to say that everyone will make that same decision in the same way, but that's just an example of how a heuristic works. It's building on a previous knowledge that the brain has or taking these cognitive shortcuts to make decisions faster because we have so many to make. So in scams, we are relying on decisions that others have made to inform the shortcuts in our own decision making. So with Anna Delvey, right, she is making the decision for you, right? She She's telling you we're getting on this jet and you will get your money, but I'm getting on the jet. The workers at the jet place don't have to decide now. Like, okay, Anna has decided for me, right? Scam artists are going to come in and essentially they're narrowing down your choices and pushing you in the direction of one choice. They're either either because they've made the decision for you and they're just pitching it to you as an option, but they've made the other option like unchoosable or uh, because they're relying on some other type of heuristic. So maybe they've gotten really close to you first and they're relying on your your relationship. So I think one that's on Netflix right now is the Tinder swindler, right? He created like romantic relationships with people and then used that to scam them right so he he's using this connection he has with another person to scam them um and this this is what's happening when we're talking with or emailing (laughs) with scam artists or people who want to con us is our brain is trying to take the shortest path to making the decision because we also we have twenty eight thousand decisions to make on top of this right and the decisions that we're making about scam aren't just will i do it or not it's things like Will I reply to this email or not? Will I keep talking to this person or not? Will I listen to them or not? Like all these little things are happening at the same time that you're also moving toward the big decision of will I give them money or not? So that's how uh, the heuristics make us more susceptible to scams. Another cognitive process that makes us more susceptible to scams 
is the difference between peripheral and central cues. So this really applies to like more online scams or or something where you're where you're reading the material, but this could also apply to like the way that you interact with someone face to face, like in a conversation. So peripheral cues are the things that clue us into deception. So let let's use the example of uh like an email scam. So let's say I'm sure all of you have had that ex- experience of getting an email that says like, "Hi, I'm your third cousin, twice removed. I'm in jail, and I need you to send me ten thousand dollars for my bail." Okay, so let's say that's the the scam email. The peripheral cues in that would be like, there's probably a ton of spelling mistakes in that email. It probably comes from a weird email account that's like just a bunch of numbers and letters at like gigaworks.com, like not even a real email. There's probably some other things, right? Like there's other peripheral cues like in that text, or maybe if you were having a, a phone conversation and someone is saying like, no man, I really am your cousin. The peripheral cues would be like, he's making mistakes. Maybe he's saying the wrong names of relatives, like these little tiny things that are the, that are where the deception lies. The central cues are like, what is the content of the message? So like, like the content of the email, the content of the phone call. And so this, this meta analysis that was, that I was looking at found that the peripheral cues are how we determine the deception and the central cues are (laughs) <laughs> will not <laughs> determine deception at all and that there is actually a, a a relationship between mood and this type of attention to cues so those who are happy or in a more positive mood are more likely to do a top down information processing style which means you look at central cues first and then your attention moves on to the smaller and smaller cues out to the peripheral so if you're going top down and you're starting at central, something catches your eye in the central queue that's like compelling, like maybe that you're going to win the lottery or they're going to send you back $20,000 after you pay them 10. The top down approach means you haven't even seen the peripheral, you haven't attended to the peripheral cues yet. So all you're seeing is the central message of like, you could win a lot of money. And you're more likely to do that when you're happy because that is the way that our... <laughs> positive mood influences our cognitive processing. We go big picture when we're more positive. People with more negative moods or in uh, depressed states are more likely to do a bottom-up approach. So they start with the tiny details and they work their way up to the big picture. So people who are more depressed or in a more negative state are more likely to notice the red flags like, oh, there's a spelling mistake or that's a weird email address or my Aunt Kathy's name isn't Susan. <laughs> they're going to start at those, those details, attending to them first and then moving up to the big picture. So they're going to catch the red flags before they even get to the prize money or whatever the central cue is. So it's actually more most likely that people who are depressed or tend to be more pessimistic are going to be scammed less often than people who are in a more positive mood. But that doesn't mean that everyone who's not clinically depressed right now is going to get scammed. <laughs> like, that's not what I'm saying at all. But it is interesting how mood is related to this. The key, the cure to getting scammed, and this is based on this article and all the information they collected, is that you have to slow down and allow yourself time to process all of the information. So that means don't respond to the scam email right away. Don't make any promises on the phone call. Hang up if you have to, right? Tell them you need to think about it if you're feeling like trapped in a conversation. Do not respond to the scam right away because especially if you're in a more positive mood, able to do this top-down thinking, you need to let your brain time to process all the way down to the details. So not just focus on the big picture, let your brain work all the way down to these little details because that's where you're going to get your clues if it's deception or not. So the way to avoid getting scammed, this is so simple, (laughs) is to slow down the way that you respond to a scam. Don't respond immediately. Give it time. Give yourself time to process all the information. And this is really hard. And I think that people who do scams implicitly know that this is what's happening, whether they are social scientists or not, because they put pressure on you, right? If you've ever been on the receiving end of one of these like scam phone calls, or even those annoying voicemails about your car warranty, (laughs) 
right? There's, they put pressure on you. It's like, this is your final warning. You need to call us right now. You need to make the decision if you're going to extend your vehicle's warranty right now, right? They're putting pressure on you to make the decision in the moment because they know that snap, snap judgment is going to at least push some people over into falling for their trick. So it's hard to do. It's not, I'm not saying that this is, that slowing down is like the end all be all only answer and that it's the easiest thing to do in the world. It's not, but I do like that it is a simple answer. <laughs> it, and the scams are designed to put you in a space where you can't slow down. So it's not your fault, right? You're being put in this place where you're being pressured and asked to speed up. But the best thing that you can do, if you can remind yourself, is to slow down. Really think about everything and let your brain do its processing all the way down or all the way up, right? If you're a bottom up, all the way through all elements. Let your brain process all the information big picture, and the details. Okay, so just two more things I want to address about this show before I wrap this episode. And these are so nitpicky, but I think they're important. The first thing is, is that from the duration of the show, Anna is in Rikers Island, which is a jail in New York. And I say that very specifically, it is a jail. (laughs) It is not a prison. But throughout the show, every character is saying, she's in prison, she's in prison. And again, I know this is very nitpicky, but I do work in a jail. So (laughs) this is important to me to make the distinction. Jail is not the same as prison. There are different resources in a jail. And a large portion of the people who are held in a jail are there for pre-trial detention. So they have been found to be some sort of risk to the community and are not able to be released before their trial. Now, unfortunately, the biggest barrier to people getting out of pretrial detention is financial. So people who cannot post their bail or even pay a bonds person to post their bail, those people are being kept in pretrial detention more often than people who have the wealth to do it. Now, Anna is not able to get out on bail because she is deemed a flight risk. So this means that the prosecution has asked the judge to keep Anna in jail because they are afraid that she will flee the country. And in the show, you'll see that they're trying to make an arrangement where she'll be asked to turn over her passport so that she can be allowed to be out of jail, uh, but she's not. She's kept in jail. And the the difference is that the jail is also typically at a different level. So counties run jails, states or the feds run prisons. So the funding is different for a jail versus a prison. And that makes a big difference for what resources are available. Now, if you know anything about Rikers Island, (laughs) you'll know that it's not doing so hot. They don't have the resources to keep it going. And it's like falling apart. And they're, they're attempting to close it down, I believe, in the next few years. But a prison, which is typically, again, run by a state or a federal agency, has a lot more resources. People are there for a lot longer. So you are going to go to a prison mostly to serve out a time post-conviction. So people are done, for the most part, with their trials. They're serving out a significant sentence, typically, because uh, shorter sentences can be served like in a jail because it's, it's much shorter, so they'll just have you stay in the jail. But these are more significant s- sentences, and there's a lot more programming. So there's programs like college, there's... Uh, like art classes, more mental health resources, not to make prison sound like club med, but it's it's different in the way that the focus is on these people are going to be here for a while, whether that's right or not. Um, and so there's more investment in like getting the people ready to come back to the community to prevent recidivism. And at jail, people may only be there for a few days or a few months. And so there's less sometimes a less focus on like investing in programs to support people who hopefully shouldn't be there for so long. And again, most of those people are going to be pre-trial. So they haven't actually been charged. They've been charged, but they haven't been convicted of a crime yet. So they're innocent until proven guilty, should they be in jail. But that's another (laughs) episode, maybe 15 episodes. Um, But that's, I don't know, that just was a pet peeve of mine. They kept calling it prison and it's not, it's a jail. Rikers Island is a jail. Uh, The second thing is that in the show, there's a depiction of Anna overdosing on alcohol and uh, I believe like sleeping pills, some type of pill. And she's put onto a 5150 hold uh, for an attempt, what is believed to be an attempted suicide. Now, 
this has not been confirmed by Anna Delvey to be true, and there's no mention of it in Pressler's original article. So I'm going to go ahead and say that this was made up by the show. Um, but I thought it was interesting that this process was even included in the show. Um, the rationale seems to be that if you are on a 5150, you can't be deported. Uh, so that that it was like Anna's plan was to uh, get placed on this psychiatric hold so that she could stay in the U.S. Because at the point when this happens, she's like pretty much been found out and she has fled New York uh, to avoid going to court because she she's trying to escape essentially her her charges. So in the show, she uh, drinks a bottle of wine with some pills and then she's found uh, by hotel staff taken to the hospital and she's placed on a 5150 hold. So if you're from outside of California, uh, the 5150 is the code that refers to involuntary psychiatric hospitalization. And that's for adults. For children, it's a different code. But for adults, it's a 5150. And that means that for up to 72 hours, you can be held against your will at a psychiatric hospital to receive care. And the criteria are either you are in imminent danger to yourself, so you have a plan to take your own life. You are in imminent danger to others, so maybe you have a plan to hurt someone or your behavior is deemed to be erratic or so unpredictable that it could damage others. Or you are what is called gravely disabled, which means there's such an impairment in your mental health and physical well-being that you're unable to take care of your basic needs like showering, eating, and getting shelter. So the gravely disabled one is not applicable here. Danger to others is not applicable here either because Anna was by herself. So she was on a 5150 in the show for danger to self because in this case, when someone is found to have overdosed like this, it's unclear uh, what their motives may be. And if you've ever read anything about like suicide or kind of the way that suicide attempts work, there is an assumption or an understanding that even if you didn't intend to die, but you ended up engaging in a behavior that could have led to your death, it should still be taken very seriously. So in the show, Anna may not have intended to actually take her life, but she was still engaging in a behavior that was very dangerous and could have led to the the, t- the taking of her life. Uh, and so that there's the rationale for for holding her is that she's in imminent danger to herself because she just engaged in this behavior that is essentially deadly. So then there's all this whole scene where she's seen by a psychiatric doctor at Cedar Sinai. It's very bougie looking. She's like in a suite and she goes through her whole life story with him and he clears her and says, I don't believe that you're really suicidal or that you're suicidal anymore. Uh, so you can go home. So the, the, the process looks really nice. The reality is that if you've ever been on one of these holds, uh, usually the police are involved because you're being involuntarily held and you're going to be transported to the hospital like by law enforcement if you're not able to go like with your therapist or, or whoever is putting the hold on you. Now, law enforcement can write a hold. They can put you on a hold themselves. Uh, and some mental health professionals can as well if they are trained to and licensed. Um, but the thing is, is that once a hold is written, you are on the hold. <laughs> So the especially if law enforcement writes it. So like like say a police officer writes a hold on you. The officer can't just shred the hold and be like never mind. You have to be cleared by a mental health professional professional a licensed mental health professional. So that's usually a psychiatrist, a psychologist or in some cases like a social worker or MFT that's licensed to do this work. And and trained to do this this specific type of work. And you, you have to be cleared and it ha- there has to be clear evidence that you are not an imminent risk yourself and imminent risk to others. Now, the standard hold is f- for 72 hours. So after 72 hours, the people who are, you are under their care at the hospital are going to make a decision. Do we need to extend the hold? Or are you okay to go? So most people after 72 hours, they, they go. They maybe get medication, a treatment plan, like a follow-up plan of like where to go to get outpatient treatment, but they're let go. In the event that they are still dangerous or either to themselves or others, uh, the hold will be extended to 14 days and there are a series of steps that you have to go through to keep extending the hold and it can eventually go up to, I believe, 180 days. 
If you are in such a risk to yourself that you need to be on a hold for more than 180 days, now we're in the process of conservatorships, which are a discussion in the Amanda Bynes and Britney Spears episodes, if you want more information about that. So the 5150 is really for a three-day hold for an imminent risk to self, others, or uh, if you're considered to be gravely disabled. So that's why Anna's let go, because she's evaluated, shown to not be in a danger to herself, and ready to let go. And you have to have like really, really clear evidence for danger to self or others. It's not just if you say you feel suicidal, or you're thinking suicidal thoughts, that's not evidence enough to be put on a hold. There has to be like clear evidence that you are going to hurt yourself in a, in a catastrophic way, like right now. And the reason why it has to be very clear is that when you get to the hospital and the person who wrote the hold gives it to the hospital they then make the decision if they're going to let you stay or not so the hospital can turn your hold away and that's why you know i think the show kind of skipped over a lot of that was we we don't really get to see a lot a lot of that process we just see a very nice doctor talking to anna for an entire episode and it seems very nice and pleasant (laughs) but the reality is is that like these are essentially emergency rooms right you're going to the hospital typically through the emergency room and being placed on a hold it can be very scary. It can be very overwhelming. Oftentimes, the person who put you on the hold, if, especially if it is law enforcement, maybe hasn't been able to explain to you what's going on. They, they've explained to you like your basic rights, but you know, it's not, it's, it's not a like, t- it's not like a timeout. <laughs> essentially, that's what I thought the show made it look like. It made the show made it look like Anna got to take a timeout at a nice hospital because Cedar Sinai is, is a nice hospital. But the reality is, is that you're probably getting checked into the county hospital. There's not enough resources. There's not enough people to help you out. You're probably in a room that's not so cute and it's going to be tough, right? And and I'm not saying that this doesn't need to be a discussion of like if 5150s even need to exist or not because I think that there are times where people really do need the protection. But I think the show does a disservice to the people who are watching the show to not portray this in an accurate way, especially because the time that Anna was found, like she didn't have anything she didn't have any money she wouldn't have been able to check herself into like a really nice place to stay and she was wasn't able to voluntarily hospitalize herself either um so i think there's a little disservice there and i think it could have been more clear uh what a 5150 is but i know that's not the point of the show it's not to be an educational show about the mental health system um, but this is like a kind of a unique process to California, even the name of it being called 5150. Like there are hospitalizations in other states and I don't know about other countries, how it works, but I would love to know if you'd like to write in. Um, but in California, it's the specific process and the specific name of the code of 5150. Uh, so they could, they could have done a lot more with it, especially because it was all fake <laughs> and doesn't seem to have really happened to Anna. So they could have spent maybe a little bit more time explaining this because it's not something that I see often in, in TV shows. But I thought that that was an important thing to address because this is a show about psychology and pop culture. And that's like an area that psychologists are involved in is this, this 5150 process. Um, so with that being said, I want to say thank you for listening to this episode. I really did like the show, even if a lot of it is fake. Um, so I highly recommend that if you haven't watched the show, uh, that when you do, you also look up like either the actual article or there's some great little listicles out there that really highlight the biggest things that are fake or different in the real story versus the show. Uh, I think it's just good to be able to, to co- like separate those things out um, so that you know what their real story is and, and what's there just for entertainment. But again, thank you for listening all the way to the end. Uh, I hope that you stick around for the next episode because I will see you in the next one. Bye-bye. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode.